prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So ends the reading of God's word. Now ages, children ages three years old all the way to kindergarten can exit the back and go to the little landing. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is so good to worship God together this morning. My name is Andrew Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at The Landing, and it is my privilege to bring God's word to you today. You'll notice in your worship folder, this was not our original plan, but God knew all along what he has planned. His plans never change, and so, uh, Lord willing, next week, Pastor Brent will be back, and we will be diving into the book of Revelation again. They are not feeling well, Pastor Brent and his family, but I, last I heard they are on the mend. So praise God. Please keep praying for them, for God to give continued healing and rest. Uh, will you pray with me and ask for God's help one more time? God, we thank you that your plans never change. You are sovereign over all things, and you know all that we need. And God, we confess what we need this morning is not to hear from me but to hear from you through your word. So would you speak, Lord? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we're gonna dig into the gospel of Mark. Currently, our youth are going through Mark on Wednesday night, so I apologize to you youth who heard lots of this on Wednesday. But thankfully, if your parents have any questions after this message, you have dug into this passage twice, so you'll be able to answer all the questions they have. It'll be perfect. So we're going to be digging into Mark 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 11, as Kevin just read, which set the scene for the rest of the book. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, who was a close friend of the Apostle Peter. So it's believed that John Mark got most of his information directly from Peter, and just like Peter was a man of action, Mark writes in a fast-paced, action-filled way. He uses the word immediately a lot. If you read through the gospel, it's again and again, immediately, immediately, immediately. And there was no time wasted in his introduction. Right from the start, Mark gets to the point and tells us who Jesus is. Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you read through Mark, you'll notice throughout the gospel, most people don't know who he is, who Jesus is. People ask, who is this person? Who is this guy who teaches with such authority? Jesus' family don't appear to know who he is at the beginning anyways. They accuse him of being mad. The scribes and Pharisees accuse him of being possessed by demons and in league with the devil. But ironically, the demons are some of the only ones who identify Jesus correctly. They say he is the Holy One of God. But before we see more about Jesus, Mark wants us to see the messenger who comes to prepare the way for 
Jesus. Look at verses 2 through 8 again. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we're introduced to John, who is known as John the Baptist. And when John hits the scene, it's not an exaggeration to say that this is a massive shift in history. But for us to understand that, we need to look back in the Old Testament. God had told his people in the Old Testament to be on the lookout for this messenger who would come. That's what Mark is showing us when he quotes from Isaiah in verses 2 and 3. But just a quick side note, if you look at the quotation from verses 2 and 3 in the Old Testament, you'll find that it is a quote from Isaiah, but it's not just from Isaiah. It's a combination from several different places. Part of it is from Isaiah 40, part of it's from Malachi 3, part of it's from Exodus 23. But all Mark says is, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't mention Malachi or Moses, which sometimes troubles people. What is going on here? Is this a mistake? Is Mark lying? No. (laughs) Thank God, no, there are no mistakes. Don't let this disturb you or shake your confidence in God's word. In early Judaism, when you had a composite quote like this, it was common practice to cite only one of the prophetic names being quoted. And while that would not be acceptable if you were going to cite multiple sources today, we can't hold Mark to our modern conventions and standards of citation. Mark is keeping with the common practice of his day. This is no error. And I bring that up because there will constantly be things where people say, well, did you know this? Did you know in Mark that Isaiah lies? There, That Mark lies about Isaiah? There's always things like that where people are banging on the Bible. And as one person has said, the Bible is the anvil that wears out every hammer. There will be accusations and God's word remains true. But back to the main point, God has told his people to be on the lookout for this messenger who would come. Look at Malachi 2.17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? So God's people are accusing him of horrible injustice. They're saying you delight in evil. You call evil good and good evil. And they mock him by saying, where is this God? Where is this God of justice? Horrible things to accuse God who is just of. And hear God's merciful response in the next verse. We can see how merciful this is because we live being able to look back at Christ. Look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God says he's coming to his people. 
That's big news. Feel the weight of that. God is coming. He's going to come to his temple. But before he comes, he will send a messenger who will prepare the way. And we're told more about this messenger at the end of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God says, Elijah will come. He is the messenger who will prepare the way. So the people of God are waiting for this Elijah-like messenger to arrive. And we're told in Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. So they're looking for this Elijah-like person to come, and he will be in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. Big news. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and no messenger came for 400 years. And then, right here in Mark, this guy shows up, and he's in the wilderness, And he's calling the people of God to repent of their sins and be baptized. And those who love God and knew the scriptures are thinking, is this finally Elijah? Is this the messenger that was promised to come? And if it is, that means God is coming. You see why John's appearance is such a big deal. And they had good reason to believe this was the Elijah-like messenger God promised because John is dressed just like Elijah dressed. We're told in 2 Kings 1.8, says, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So that's why Mark talks about how he's dressed. Because John is dressed just like Elijah. And John is preaching repentance, which is exactly what Elijah was constantly preaching. So you can picture it. News is spreading far and wide. This might be the messenger. This might be the one. And great crowds of people are coming out to hear John preach. Is this the one? And God, under God's grace, people are repenting of their sin and being baptized as a sign of their repentance. After 400 years of waiting, the messenger has arrived. Now, there are lots of things we can see in John the Baptist that, by God's grace, we want to emulate. But maybe the greatest thing is that he knew it wasn't about him. John knew it wasn't about him. The reason John's arrival is so great is because it meant God was coming. John's ministry was not about John. It was about Jesus. Look again at what John says of himself in verse 7, Mark 1, 7. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. One of the lowliest tasks you could have in this day was cleaning someone's feet. It was the job of the lowest servant, which is why it's so amazing that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, washes the disciples' feet. But John says, I'm not even worthy to unstrap this one's sandals, much less clean his feet. And this is John the Baptist. He could have easily began to start thinking that he was what was special. He had crowds of people coming to hear him preach. He was one of the most famous people in Israel at one time. He's prophesied about in the Old Testament. How many people can say that? You know when he talks about, he's talking about me. And he's called Elijah, which is really good company to be in. If you think about Jesus' transfiguration, 
two people join Jesus as he's shining bright to talk with him. Look at Mark 9, 2 2 through 4. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus at this moment, and John is called Elijah. Jesus says in Matthew 11 that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise. But John says, there's someone coming who is so much greater than me that I am not worthy to undo his sandals. Oh, how I want that to be, how I always view God and myself. Isn't that how you want to view God and yourself? He is so big and I am so small. This is a needed reminder for me, but it's applicable to all who are in Christ. Don't forget, we are simply pointers. It's not about us. It's about God. Whatever your role in the body of Christ is, every elder of this church, every teacher, Bible study leader, worship leader, part of a ministry team, every Christian is merely a pointer. In a culture that is constantly trying to emphasize personal greatness, that is obsessed with resumes and accolades and degrees and achievements, likes and followers, abilities, breadth of influence, oh, how we need a bigger view of God. A big view of God will lead us to a joyfully small view of ourselves. A big view of God will lead us to a joyfully small view of ourselves. The religious leaders of Jesus' day got angry when the crowds were leaving them and going to Jesus. They said, we got to kill that guy. He's messing with what we have going here, our fame. But when people left John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus, he rejoiced. He said in John 3, 29, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He's saying, this is great. Everybody's leaving. Everybody's following Jesus. This is great. This is what I came for. His joy was complete. What if God said, Christ must increase and the landing must decrease? What if in God's providence, he chose to bring persecution that He used to spread the gospel and increase the praise of his name in the hearts of people throughout the Northland, but also necessarily caused the landing to decrease or go underground or have to change the way we do things. Would we rejoice? I hope we would rejoice. I hope at our funerals people can't talk about us without talking about Jesus. One other way to apply this We not only face the temptation to pridefully elevate ourselves, there is also the temptation to think too highly of our heroes. It's especially easy to do with people who we rightly admire and respect. We praise God for godly men and women who have had a deep impact in our lives. Good Christian authors and scholars, faithful pastors and evangelists, now and from the past, groups of people like the Puritans and faithful missionaries. We praise God for those people. But don't forget, the best of them are not worthy to bend down and undo the strap of Jesus' sandal. We must keep that in mind when we rightly honor and learn from and emulate faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. God, keep us from elevating anyone near God himself in our thinking or in our speech or in our affections. May it be that the longer we walk with God, 
everyone else decreases and Christ increases. Well, in verse 9, after all the anticipation, the Son of God arrives on the scene. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his ministry doesn't begin with public fanfare or a kingly entrance. He goes out into the wilderness and is baptized by John. But Jesus is not being baptized for the same reason everyone else is. John is calling for people to repent of their sin and be baptized as a sign of their repentance. Jesus had no sin to repent of. He had no confession to make. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is baptized to humbly identify with his people and display perfect submission to his Father. He's being baptized to humbly identify with his people and display perfect submission to his Father. Throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel his son. Give you one example from Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the Hebrews are in slavery in Egypt, and God is going to free them and bring them into the wilderness and make a covenant with them. And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. But in Exodus 4, God doesn't just call them his people, he calls them his firstborn son. Look at Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And God delivered Israel from slavery, and they went through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and God did make a covenant with them, and they said they would be faithful. In Exodus 24.3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Promising start. And it took almost no time for them to break their promise. They sinned against God over and over again. And now thousands of years later, here comes Jesus, the eternal son of God. And he has come into the wilderness like Israel to be baptized like Israel was baptized in going through the Red Sea to establish a new covenant. Jesus is identifying with Israel, but he's not going to fail. He is going to live in perfect submission and obedience to God his Father. There are other reasons why Jesus was baptized that you can see in the other Gospels, but Mark is highlighting that Jesus comes as the true and better Son of God who will perfectly submit to his Father's will. He's the true and better Son of God who will perfectly submit to his Father's will. And as Jesus comes out of the water, something amazing happens. We get to see each person of the Trinity. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends on God the Son and remains on him. So from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see that this is a work of the triune God. Our salvation is a work of the triune God. Not just one member, all of them. All members of the Trinity are at work in our salvation. Currently, our elders are working on a landing podcast called Life in Christ. And Lord willing, it will launch this fall. But just a few weeks ago, I got to sit in on a recording with Paul Anderson and Brent as they talked about the Trinity. And Paul said something about the Trinity that was really helpful. I'm paraphrasing. He said it better. But he said this, 
Each member of the triune God plays a distinct role in our salvation, but God is never at odds with himself. It is not like God the Son in eternity past said, oh, I guess I got the bad job. I have to go die. Or God the Father was the only one who had a problem with sin, and the Son and the Spirit were kind of indifferent. Or that the Holy Spirit was just waiting for his moment. No, there is no disunity in the triune God. Salvation is accomplished by all three persons of the Godhead to magnify himself. And we get to see that beginning here in Jesus' ministry in Mark 1. What a God we serve that loves sinners like us. But I want you to notice something in verse 10. I want you to see the word torn. It says in Mark 1.10, Immediately he, Jesus, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That word torn is only used one other place in the Gospel of Mark, and it's at the end. In Mark 15, when Jesus is crucified, it says, at, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn, same word, in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So Mark bookends his gospel with this word, torn. And you notice some similarities, both at the beginning and at the end, Jesus is proclaimed the Son of God. In chapter 1, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 15, the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. In chapter 1, the heavens are torn open. In chapter 15, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. This was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelled, from the rest of the temple. It symbolized separating holy God from sinful people. And as Jesus dies, that curtain is ripped in two. So what's the point? Why is the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry, as recorded in this gospel, marked by this divine tearing? Well, one reason is to show Jesus' fulfillment of several passages of the Old Testament. There are several passages in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word translated into Greek, that torn, is used again and again, pointing to Christ. I'll give you a couple examples. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear them, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. God did tear the heavens, and God the Father sent his Son, and the Spirit did come down. Or Isaiah 48, 21. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split, tore the rock, and water gushed out. Jesus is the fulfillment of the rock that was split so that we will not thirst. Jesus says, John 7, 37, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and he will satisfy. There are several other examples we could give of how Jesus fulfills these tearings in the Old Testament. So that's one reason why Mark bookends this gospel this way. And second is to highlight and display the good news. To highlight and display the good news. You remember verse 1, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is that good news? What is this good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, from Mark, you could say it this way. The good news is that there's been a tearing open. 
The heavens have been torn open. God the Son has come down to live as a man and identify with us. He perfectly submitted to his Father in the power of the Spirit, and the Father was well pleased with his Son. But then, the Son of God died on a cross, and while he was on the cross for the first time ever, the Father did not look on his Son and tell him he was well pleased. Instead, he poured out his wrath on his perfect Son for our sins. Jesus died in our place and was forsaken by his Father. And in dying for our sins, he tore open heaven for us. The sin that separated us from God has been paid for, and there was no need for that curtain. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. And he has brought us to God. And now for all who are in Christ... We have been so united to Christ that God the Father can say to you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. What good news. We are beloved children of God. Now, I'm not saying that we are sons of God the way Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was not made a son. He is the eternal son. We are adopted children of God. Jesus is by nature the eternal son of God. We were by nature children of wrath. But for all who are trusting in Christ, you have been so united to him that the Bible says his death was yours and his resurrection is yours and his righteousness is yours, all given as a gift. Here's a helpful quote from a faithful pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, that is saturated with scripture on our union with Christ. It says, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We were baptized into his death. We are resurrected with Christ. We have been raised with him. We sit with him in the heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we will share in his promised return when Christ, who is our life, appears. We also will appear with him in glory. So if you're not trusting in Christ, if you've not received him as all that he is, if you don't know the joy of your sins being forgiven and knowing you are a son or daughter of God, trust in him today. The good news Mark writes about is offered to you. It's offered to you. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and receive his righteousness. God has torn open the heavens so that we could be with him and know fullness of joy forevermore. And oh brother or sister in Christ, this is good news for you. Your union with Christ is your identity. It's who you are. How do you think about yourself, Christian? In a day and age that is so identity confused, who are you? Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, that's your story. That is who you are who God has made you. There are details about how God drew you to himself specifically, but if you whittle it all down, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. In the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. 
That's who you are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Your identity is not your personality. You don't find out who you are by doing the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or any other personality test. By God's grace, my personality needs to change. It is not fully aligned with Christ, and it must change. Thankfully, it's not who I am. Who I am is in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit forever, and it will not change. So who are you, Christian? You are a beloved, adopted son or daughter of the King. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. It's this truth of our union with Christ that inspired Charity Bancroft to write these words to a now famous hymn before the throne of God above. It says, One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Struggling Christian, your union with Christ is the reason why you have confidence that your standing and acceptance before God will not change. Your worst failings have not changed your standing and your acceptance before God. Your failures this week have not changed that. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, says it this way, to live by grace is to live solely by the merit of Jesus Christ. To live by grace is to base my entire relationship with God, including my acceptance and standing with him on my union with Christ. The basis for your relationship with Christ is Christ. Not your performance, not the good things you've done or not done, not the sins you have committed. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. May God give us the grace to live in Christ in such a way that he would increase and we would decrease. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for sinners like us. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all that you have done. God, would you cause us to decrease and cause Christ to increase in our thinking, in our speech, in our affections. Would you cause us to decrease and Christ to increase for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.